uh, I think about the past couple weeks, it just seems like, all, I mean, I know the news is always depressing and bad, but it seems like the past couple weeks have been kind of exceptional in that way, you know? Um, you know, you've got the typical wars going on, but then, you know, you've got the Gaza-Israel thing that seemed to kind of get ratcheted up a little bit. And then you got all the stuff going in, like, Eastern Europe, and nobody knows what Russia's doing. Of course, when do we ever, but now especially, you know, you got that kind of stuff. And then you got all the news coming out of Iraq, uh, and who knows which reports are totally accurate and which aren't, but whatever's happening, there's bad things going on where minority groups, particularly people who we would agree with in terms of our faith, are being systematically persecuted in really violent, terrible ways. Uh, and then even somebody who, you know, was the genie for them growing up, or whoever their favorite, you know, funny guy, um, commits suicide, and it's just shocking and saddening and all this kind of stuff. And in the world that's so broken, uh, it's hard for human beings to know how to cope with it, you know. Uh, and we're right in with that, obviously. Of course, ever since the beginning, really, God has always wanted to have people who were the coping mechanism to some extent, right? You think about it, just in the world, God's always wanted to have people who are doing special things, who were different from the world, and yet serving the world. In some ways, that's what humanity is from the very beginning. Whenever God, according to the Genesis account of creation, when God created humanity... He created us different from everything else. Everything else he just made. But with us, it's like there's a big pause that's placed on it. It says, okay, man is different. And even people who don't believe in God know that man is different. There's something unique about us. And of course, the Bible's account, God's picture of us, is that we're made differently for a reason. Genesis 1 talks about how man has to have dominion and to fill the earth and to do all these great things for God. Of course, that didn't work out so well really soon after that. We fall off the wagon. We're acting just like everything else. And the thing we're supposed to have dominion over actually kind of takes control of us, right? And so man falls off. And then God raises up this nation of people. And in Exodus 19, God pulls them out of slavery and he says, I'm going to use you. You're different than every other people group in the world. And I'm going to use you for my glory and my purposes. Well, then they didn't do so good either, right? They kind of fell apart and acted just like the nation around them. When you read through the Kings and the Chronicles and the Prophets, that was the problem with Israel was that they were just like everybody else. They weren't distinct. They weren't serving others. They weren't doing anything. They were acting just like the broken world around them. Uh, well, then Jesus comes, and he appoints a people who are unique, and who are unique for a purpose. And yet a lot of times, even today, we fall off from that. And I think that's a big problem with Christianity, is we end up acting just like the world around us, and we lose sight of our purpose. This text in 1 Peter chapter 2 talks to us about coming to Jesus out of the world coming to Jesus out of the world. And that's what I want us to think about for a little bit. As far as our nature of being distinct from the world, we're not supposed to be like everything else. But also, we're not just supposed to be different. I think some Christians are like, yeah, we're supposed to be different. So we'll isolate and we'll be separate and we'll kind of look down our noses and talk bad about everybody. But that's not the Bible picture of God's people. The Bible picture is we're different for a purpose, to help and to serve and to bring people with us to the Lord. Uh, so we're not going to reread since we read it already, but I want to suggest you three things that should make us different and that should lead us to a higher purpose. One thing is our basis for living. A second is our identity as we live. And a third thing is our activity in the world. So our basis for living, our identity in our lives, and then our activity in the world. So the first thing is our basis for living. You know, a lot of people in the world, everybody bases their life on something. So I'm rich, so that's what my life is all about. Or I'm funny, so that's what my life's all about. Or, um, you know, I, I 
I learn stuff, and that's, that's what I base my life on. Everybody has a foundation that they stand on. This text here in 1 Peter 2, uh, Peter points to the foundation that we are to have. He says there in verse 4 that we come to Him, come to Jesus here. It's in the context of what the Lord has done for us, the goodness of the Lord, verse 3 of chapter 2. We come to Him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Uh, he takes this whole idea of a foundation for your life and really plays on this concept in a lot of ways. Jesus is described as a stone, and a, uh, a very diverse stone. This text talks about a lot of different qualities of his uh, stoneship, I guess we could say, as our Savior. Look at some of the things about him. One is he's a living stone there in verse 4, right? So the foundation for our lives is alive, which is kind of a weird, it's almost like out of a sci-fi movie or something, the way this is described, right? Most stones we think of as kind of inanimate objects, right? So whatever a stone is, that's what it is. You ever thought about that? There's no, there's no uh, worry about this building that the, the foundation is going to grow, like up or sideways or anything like that. It is what it is. If anything, it's going to decay, but it's not going to grow. The stone that we are built upon, the foundation for our lives, is itself or himself alive. Which I think is just an interesting concept, because so many people have sort of dead things, that they're building their life on. And so we sort of base our life off that, but we also say, you know, anytime I want to pull off this thing, I can, because it's not really what my life is connected. So if I want to choose another foundation to live on, that's fine too. This stone, you can't really do that. There, there, there's this symbiotic relationship that's created between Jesus and his people. He's a living stone, and we also, as living stones, verse 5, are being built up as a spiritual house. And so there's an idea that we're connecting to something that's alive, that's a source of life. Jesus is, as we read in that text in Revelation 5, the root of David. So there's an idea of this foundation that we're on. It's alive and it gives life. Look at another idea of this, uh, of this stone here. If you look in verse 6, he's a cornerstone. The cornerstone is important for any kind of building project when you're laying the foundation because it defines everything else, right? So there are other texts in the scriptures that talk about the foundation we're built upon, being the apostles and prophets and stuff like that. But really, the stone that defines all other things that you know undergird our faith, and so that would include the Bible and just all kinds of things like that, that define who we are as God's people, the corner is Jesus himself. He's the one that defines everything else. Now that tells me something. That tells me that my basis for living is something that's sort of independent of me, and I've got to either line up or kind of just get out of town on this, you know? I've got to decide, am I willing to accept Jesus, who he is, what he's about, what he thinks, because he's got to be my basis for living. Now, so many times we're tempted to choose a foundation, choose a basis for living that sort of suits what I think. In other words, I want to be the cornerstone, and I want whatever foundation I'm building in my life to kind of fit in with what I already want. That's not how it works with Jesus. We can't work it that way. Jesus is what he is, and we just have to decide if we're willing to accept him as that. Now, it's hard to accept Jesus, this living cornerstone, because notice what the text says back in verse 4. Uh, he's rejected by men. I think that's the reason why this living cornerstone is hard for us to accept and really root our lives in and define everything about us by, is because people don't accept Jesus. Even people who really like Jesus don't really accept Jesus. You ever notice that, you know? It's like people who love Jesus. You start talking about something that he says or something that he did, you're like, I don't really know. It's kind of like what Rob was saying about the money thing. A lot of people are really good Christians. We don't care about caring for other people's needs, you know. Uh, but I'm a good Christian. But 
all that stuff Jesus said about caring about other people, I'm not going to do that stuff, you know? Uh, or there's some people who are really good about caring about people, but then Jesus starts really talking about, like, you need to be a moral person, and you need to be pure, or you need to uh, perform these different acts of religious uh, piety towards God. It's like, oh, no, 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 that's not the Jesus I know. Well, listen, Jesus is hard to accept. We've got to learn to accept him, but a lot of the world does not. A lot of the world rejects him. And this text talks about that. It's interesting, this quotation here in verse uh, 7 and 8, this was actually referenced by Jesus himself, that the stone which the builders rejected. Now, you would think the builders would want the stone because this is what you're going to build everything on. But the builders, they don't want this. In other words, they want to build something separate from this stone. This became the very corner. And, a, and he became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they, dis, they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. Into this doom they were also appointed. People who reject Jesus are going to stumble. They're going to be crushed. In this quotation, this idea of Jesus as the stone that the builders rejected, Jesus talked about on three in three of the Gospels, it's the same occasion, in Matthew 21, Mark 12, and Luke 20. And Jesus tells a story um, about a man who owned a field, and he rented it out to tenants, and then he left. And then he later sent servants to gather some of the fruit, because after all, it was his field, right? And the people said, we don't want to help the guy, so we're going to... They beat up his servants and treat them shamefully. And he sent more servants, and they killed them. And then finally he says, I'll send my son. They will respect my son. Whenever the son came, the people said, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and we'll have the field for ourselves. And then Jesus quotes from this uh, psalm, Psalm 118, and it's interesting, in all the parables of Jesus, you know whenever Jesus told parables, people were always like, even the, his best disciples, whenever Jesus told parables, they were always like, what are you talking about? But this was like the one that people got, you know? Even the bad guys, even the Pharisees and all the guys who were opposing Jesus, they got the point that Jesus was saying, you have to figure out if you're going to accept me or not. And accepting me or not defines whether you accept God or not. As God's people, we have to accept this rejected cornerstone who will be rejected even by the most religious and the most intelligent. You know that 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that illustrates this point of how everybody's going to reject Jesus, even the best people, right? To the Jews, Jesus was ridiculous because he, wasn't, he didn't have some kind of great sign or anything coming, which, I mean, come on, he came back from the dead, but he didn't have a sign they wanted him to have. But also to the Greco-Roman world, which was not nearly as pious as the Jewish world, but in the Greco-Roman world, which had made the greatest advances in human history and science and technology and politics and economics and everything, they looked at Jesus and said, that's ridiculous, that is foolishness, you know? And Paul said, but that's what we got. We preach Christ and Him crucified, and He's going to make some people stumble. You know, as we're trying to be people who are coming to Jesus out of the world, we've got to realize that this is the basis of our life. Someone who is ridiculous in the world's eyes. A man who lived homeless for parts of his life, not the whole time, but parts of it. Uh, a man who was countercultural in every way, and still is in every generation. A man who um, was abandoned by every friend that he had, was unjustly accused and mistreated and finally killed. This is the man who we follow. Not only who we follow, but this is the basis for our life. This is the living cornerstone that defines everything about who we are as the people of God. And if we're really going to come out of the world in order to serve the world, we've got to have our lives based on this and understand who Jesus really is 
and have him as the building block. Not what society says, um, not what our work tells us or what our family tells us or what our bodies tell us, but what God tells us through the person and work of Jesus. Now, that sounds like a humongous downer, and it kind of is. If not for, what else the text says here? Look back in verse 4, what it says about this basis for our lives in Jesus. The stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You know, the beautiful thing about this basis for our life is that we know that He works. Now, it doesn't seem like He works. You read His teachings and you think, that doesn't work. Turn the other cheek. Give my money away. Be pure. Be faithful. That, that, that stuff doesn't sound like it will work in this world. Even some of the teachings that he gave about how the future is going to be, it doesn't compute with what we understand. But he came back from the dead, which nobody else does, ever. I mean, people did it. But of course, he came back on his own power and by his own will and in his own timing. Nobody else has ever done that in human history, but he did. And because he did, it's proof that God the Father has chosen him and sees him as precious. And so while the world may look at us and say, you're ridiculous, and what you believe is ridiculous, and what you do is ridiculous, and we reject you, and you shouldn't be doing all this kind of stuff, we know that this man was one whom God approved of. And if we build our lives on him, then we're going to be different from the world, but we're also going to be able to do something for the world, just like Jesus did, to bring people to a knowledge of the gospel. All right, so that's the basis for our lives. If we're going to come out of the world to Jesus, that's the basis Second thing, though, is our identity. One of the reasons that we struggle with coming out of the world in order to be different and to serve the world is our identity. Um, you know, if you were, if we wouldn't just ask people, like, who are you? If we just went and asked random people on the street, I guess people would say a lot of different things. I'm a mom, or I'm a banker, or I'm a scientist, or I'm an athlete, or I'm a friend, or whatever. Whatever it is, that stuff's important because all of us, as human beings, have to find something that defines us to our core. You know what I mean? And everybody, you see that in what people, uh, how they live their life and how they talk about themselves and how they relate to people. You even see this, especially when people go to other countries, right? Um, you act a certain way because you think, I am from blah, blah, blah place. All of you are from this country, and I'm from a different place. And so, I may still, we may still be friends and everything, hopefully, but... It definitely alters the way I perceive my world and the way I relate to other people and what I'm all about and why I'm here and all that sort of thing. So our identity is really, really important. This passage has a lot to say about our identity. Do you notice that? Uh, for instance, in verse 5, uh, he says we're like living stones. So we're like rocks that are getting built. That's one thing that he says. He goes on to say that we're being built into a spiritual house and he takes us from this stone metaphor and kind of shifts us into something else. A spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you go a little further down the text in verses 9 and 10, after talking about Jesus, he just lists off a bunch of things, and all these are references from the Old Testament, of identity markers of the people of God, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. If you go on down to the verse 10, he talks about how used to you were not a people, but now because of the mercies of God, you are God's people. So, let me look at this from two angles as far as our identity that should shape us in our interactions with the world, being different from, but also serving the world for God, uh, for God's sake. Uh, one is that we're just a distinct people. You notice that, especially in verse 9, this chosen generation or chosen race, uh, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession. So we're something different. I don't know about you, though, but those terms don't help me a whole lot in understanding how my identity is supposed to make me something, you know? What am I supposed to do with that? What's the function of this identity, right? Okay, I'm, I'm a person. Woo! I'm a part of a nation. What do we do about that? I want to focus in on more that I think is a more of a functional identity that's listed here, and that's the idea of being priests. In terms of our identity, God tells us that we are priests. So I feel like if you asked a bunch of Christians and you said, who are you in Christ? Who are you in Christ? That's a little more focused than our other question of who are you? If you ask people about their identity, who are you in Christ? I think people would have a hard time with that, you know? I think we get a lot of answers, you know? Well, I'm a child of God, which is true. Uh, I'm a Christian, also true. I'm a disciple. All those things are true. But in terms of our place in the world, I think one of the most important identities that God gives us is the idea of being a priest. It's the book of Revelation uh, begins, and we read it in chapter 5. Uh, so it's in chapter 1, chapter 5, and also ends, chapter 20. It talks about we are a kingdom of priests. And then here this text, in two ways, talks about us being a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood. So we're different and we're special, like in a really powerful, royal kind of way. I want to look at a couple of texts that help us understand this a little bit. Look at Exodus 19. We'll come back to 1 Peter 2 in a second. As we think about our identity as being priests, Let's look at Exodus chapter 19. This is right after the deliverance from Sinai. Israel, by the mercy and power of God, has been brought out of captivity. And they get brought to Sinai. And usually whenever we think about Sinai, we think about Ten Commandments, right? Charleston Heston went up there, got the Ten Commandments, came down, told everybody about it, and all that kind of stuff. And that's what we usually picture, is that scene, right? But before that ever happened... God talked to the people about something else, and it really helps us understand the purpose of the commandments, why God gave all these instructions for how the Israelites needed to live their life. Look with me in verse 4. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So here, this is the description of their salvation. Deliverance from their enemies brought to God. Similar to what 1 Peter 2 says, coming to Him, right? Um, Now then, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. That's a 1 Peter 2 language. Among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. God says, I've got all the earth, all the peoples belong to me, but you're going to be a special people to me. Well, for what, God? Why are you choosing us? What do you want us to do? And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. You know, throughout time, people understood the need for priests. Uh, it's interesting to me, priests are one of those things that I think are sort of a marker of God's thumbprint on us. Have you ever noticed everybody wants a priest? Everybody. So, obviously, there's like the classic, probably the way in our culture we think about priests are like the Catholic Church, right? You know, the whole point of that is you go to a guy who tells you what you need to do in order to be related to God, and also he tells you stuff that God said to you. And people understand, if you want to get connected to God, you need somebody like that. Even people who don't believe, aren't Christians, though, understand the need for priests. And by the way, people who aren't Catholic have guys they call pastors or ministers or whatever, and like, that's my guy who will get me close to God. But even people who aren't Christians believe in priests. You may call him like a, a guru or uh, an imam or whatever else your group calls him. You call him something, and he's somebody or she's somebody who connects you to God. Even those who don't believe in a divine, right, in like something supernatural out there, even people who, and I guess 
perhaps there are different variations of this, people who are atheists even believe in priests. And we call them scientists. And we believe they have to tell us there's something mysterious out there, supernatural, beyond our understanding of the natural world. We don't call it supernatural, but that's really what we think about it. We need someone to tell us, how do we manipulate our world? Or how do we make sure the world doesn't hurt us in some way or whatever? So we go to this guy who's a scientist, and he tells us how to connect as human beings to the thing that's beyond our control. So the idea of a priesthood is consistent through every human being. We all know that we need something to connect us to the thing that's greater than ourselves. And in the Bible, you see different people brought up like Melchizedek or Jethro, different people. But here, God says to Israel, I want you to be the connection between all of humanity and me. Now, of course, Israel kind of rejected this right off the bat. And so God chose Levi and uses Levi and all that sort of thing. But really, Israel and the Levitical priesthood were not the last batch of priests. Look at Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. By this point, God's priesthood that he had chosen had completely failed. They had become selfish and greedy and materialistic and fleshly and all sorts of evil things. They had ceased teaching God's word. When you read Malachi chapter 1 and 2, you see that the people were, the priests were failing in pretty much their two primary duties. One being offering sacrifices and two, teaching. The sacrifices brings men to God. Teaching brings God to men. That was the two functions of priests. And they had failed in it completely. We've lost our connection to God. We've lost that. But God had a plan for another group to come along. In Isaiah 61, you'll probably recognize the first three verses, the first two and a half verses. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. These words may sound familiar to you. In Luke chapter 4, these are the words that Jesus spoke to inaugurate his ministry there in Luke's gospel account whenever he went to the synagogue in Nazareth. And Jesus closed the scroll after he read this, and he said, this has been fulfilled. So this is a passage about Jesus, right? But notice what Jesus came to do. Obviously, he came to save people, kind of like God did in bringing the people out of Egypt. But it wasn't just to save people, not to save us, but to make us into something different, to give us a new identity, to not be brokenhearted mourners, to not be people who uh, are poor and afflicted and blind and all that, but he wanted to change us, to make us into something different. Notice what he says. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Something, God was going to take these people and make us into something different. And what are we going to do? Verse 4, Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins, they will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. You know, it kind of sounds like these people are going to like be royalty or something, where other people are going to be coming to them and doing things for them or something. There's going to be somebody special. And the special people are called, in verse 6, priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion, and instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy 
will be theirs. What this prophecy says is the people that Jesus came to save, He didn't just come to get us off the hook for our sins so we could go to heaven. I think sometimes we have that picture. It's like, you need to build your life on Jesus, so one day, this little house you build, God will pick it up and take it into heaven, and you'll have a nicer, fancier one up in heaven. That's not the purpose. I mean, that's a great blessing. But what Jesus came to do is to change who we are so that we would be people who would accomplish something in the world for the glory of God. We would be these oaks of righteousness, that we would be these priests of the Lord. That's the purpose. And that text in 1 Peter 2 indicates that. You're this holy priesthood. You've been called out of darkness and into His marvelous light for a purpose. He's got you and He wants to change you and make you into something different. You're royalty. You don't have to submit to the thoughts and ways of the world anymore. You're a son. You're a brother to the king, which makes you like princes and princesses. That's what God has made us to be so that we would serve this broken world. And I think about like the picture that's given there in Isaiah 61 that we would rebuild the ancient ruins. You know, I think the past week in news, or the past couple weeks in news, um, on TV and on the internet and all that, that's ancient ruins. People hurting people. People giving up on life, thinking it's not worth living anymore. People who are violent and unjust and evil and greedy and all these kinds of things, those are ancient ruins that have plagued humanity forever. What's God's answer to that? His answer is you and me. The holy and royal priesthood in the world. And that's why we come to Jesus out of the world. It's not just so that we'll get to go somewhere nice one day. We do get to, and thank God for that. While we're here, God has commissioned us to be His priests. Every one of us to be His priests, too. I think sometimes it's easy for us. We think, oh, no, no, we're not like those people that have like clergy and laymen. But the truth is, we kind of develop that mentality. At least we think they're like super Christians, and they're the rest of us, you know. And the super Christians can do great stuff, but then the rest of us, we're just kind of hanging on, and we'll show up for church, and we'll kind of be pretty good people, but that's it. That's not it. You're a priest of the Lord. If you've been called out of darkness and into His light, if you've had Him repair your broken heart, if you've been comforted, if you've been given sight in your blindness, then you're a priest of the Lord. And when people ask you, who are you? That's who we are in the world, serving God for His glory and serving people for their salvation and their joy. So what does that mean? We've looked at the basis for our life in this world as we come to God out of the world. Uh, We've looked at our identity as priests. But what is that functionally going to mean? I think this prophecy we just read from gives us a little bit of a hint, right? Uh, We're builders. We're doing something in the world, trying to help and serve. Uh, We're honoring God, glorifying Him and all that. And 1 Peter 2 talks about that as well, if you want to flip back over there. 1 Peter 2. There's two fundamental things. We talked about this a second ago as far as what priests do. Priests of Jesus who've come to the Lord and have allowed Him to build us into this spiritual house, this priesthood. One thing we do is we make sacrifices. Verse 5 says, We are made into this holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you look down in verses 11 and 12, He kind of explains to us a little bit of how we do that. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers... In other words, it's people who are outside of the rest of the world. You're different. You're weird people, right? You're priests that nobody knows how to relate to and stuff. Um, That you abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. That's one way we make sacrifices, is abstaining from fleshly lusts. We've got to be people who are exceptionally pure. And it's so easy to just kind of measure ourselves by the world. 
So the world is R-rated, so we just be PG-13 rated. You know what I mean? And I don't mean just in our movie choices. I'm using that as a metaphor for how we live our lives, right? Like the world's doing this stuff, so we'll just back it off a level. That's a really bad way to live. Because what happens when the world gets X-rated? Then I'm just R-rated, right? So I'm getting worse, but I'm still better than everybody else. And what happens when the world loses all senses of standards or right and wrong? Then I don't have anything to compare to, which then that means I've lost my standard. We've got to be able to be exceptionally pure and holy. Think about 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatry. Somebody says, all that stuff that, that defines the world, you're not supposed to have any part of that. Like, we're supposed to be different from that as God's people. Abstain from those fleshly lusts. Now, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. People, whenever we live differently, people are going to attack that. Look back in chapter 2 and verse 11, where he talks about this, these fleshly lusts. He goes on to say that we're to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so then the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. you ever thought about that? Doing good things in the world, as far as our activity as priests of God, if we're going to abstain from fleshly lust and be exceptionally pure and holy in our speech, in our conduct, in our relationships, at work, on our taxes, in every aspect of our life, if we're going to be exceptionally pure and holy, people are going to look at that and think of that as an evil thing. Because it's like you're judging me, you know? If you're doing really good and I'm doing really bad, I'm going to feel really bad about that. And I'm not going to like how you make me feel guilty. So you're evil because of what you're doing to me by your good behavior. We just got to be okay with that. If our lives are really based on Jesus Christ, if we're really going to take on this identity of being priests of the Lord, then we need to understand our activity is going to be rejected by the world sometimes because we're going to be exceptionally different. And that's going to take sacrifice in the way we speak, in the way we use our money, in the way we relate to other people, in the way we talk about our government or don't talk about our government, in the way we work, in the way our families function and husbands and wives treating one another, in the way we treat one another as a community. And if you want to see how that exactly plays out, later on you can go home and read 1 Peter 2 and 3 because that's what he goes on and talks about it. All those things, we're going to be different. And we make our sacrifice as God's priests for that purpose. Now, we say, we say well, why... <laughs> If people are going to hate it, what's the good of that, you know? Why don't we just kind of conform to the world? People aren't going to accept it anyways. Why do we have to be so different? I thought that we were supposed to come out of the world in order to serve the world, bless the world, do something in the world. Well, I think that's explained at the end of verse 12 there in 1 Peter 2. He says, "...and the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation." The purpose for us behaving differently as God's priests is that they would glorify God. And how are people going to do that? How are people going to come to glorify God? As we base our lives on Jesus, have our identity defined by being priests of God, and then behave differently, have a different kind of activity, being exceptionally pure and holy, abstaining from fleshly lusts and doing good deeds, how are people going to know what it's about? Because, you know, there are atheists who are pretty nice people. You know what I mean? They're Hindus, I know, who are really, really great people who will help you out and do all this great stuff. So how are people going to know that you're not just doing good deeds just because you're a sort of philanthropic person, that you're just a nice guy, that you're just a do-gooder? Then it goes back to verse 10, verse 9. 
God has made us into different people so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Remember earlier we said priests had two functions. They offered sacrifices, bringing men to God. But they also spoke the word of God, bringing God to man. You know, the way people will learn about God or glorify God through our activity of living different lives in every aspect is when we talk about God. I think evangelism is a hard thing in a lot of different ways. One is, is whenever people reject it, right? You go, you try to tell somebody, hey, you should serve Jesus. I hate your guts. Get out of my face. Okay, sorry. And then next week when we meet somebody who actually like seems to be a Jesus person and we think about talking to them, like, no, that didn't really go too well last time. I think it's because we define success in evangelism in wrong ways. We think success is me saying something and someone responding and they get baptized and they live a perfect holy life from there on from that day forward, you know. That's not really how what evangelism is. Notice how this text defines our evangelistic work, our purpose as God's priest teaching his, his uh, things in the world. Talk about how good he is. Talk about how good he is. We all do that. I bet every person in this room, if we run around, has some product that they talk about as being a good product. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's your phone. Maybe it's your... I don't know, Angela's got something because she's smiling. Everybody's got something, you know what I mean? And like, people are really good at evangelism. Just human beings are good at it. Or we have a person who we really are able to preach their gospel really well. That lady is such a good cook, man. When she makes that thing, I'm going to be there every single time, whatever it is, you know. Or that guy, he's just the nicest guy. He'd do anything for you. Well, we're not, we don't feel weird to say that, you know. And it just naturally comes out. You know what, with Jesus, I think we're afraid that we're going to mess it up, that that's not enough, you know, that... If I'm going to talk about Jesus, I've got to make sure that I have this perfect little 45-second sermon that I preach that will convert the person. That's not it at all. Talk about how good he is. Just like your grandma who baked that great pie, or your neighbor who helped you out when you had your fence that you had to fix, or whatever it was. And I'm not trying to say that Jesus is like your grandma or anything like that, but you know what I'm saying? Like, what this text says is the way we impact the world in our activity is by talking about the goodness of God. And if we really believe in the goodness of God, that's going to help us to behave like God wants us to. That's why whenever he goes on in this text to talk about people with their masters, and they had even harsh masters, or bad, you know, what we put it, a bad boss, just keep on serving them and submitting to them. Because after all, you got a better master anyways. And you know what? Whenever people say, hey man, why are you, everybody hates our boss, he's a total jerk, and he treats everybody wrong, and he's unjust. Why are you so okay with that? Well, I've got a better master anyways. Can we tell you about him? Or whenever your government is terrible and they're killing Christians, which, by the way, that's what these people were facing, you submit to that government? Not only that, you don't just submit to it, but there in the text it says, honor the king. That sounds to me like, say good things about him. And your king's a terrible person. How do you do that? And imagine today, if, we, if Christians were like that, that we all... If we said anything about our government, it was just positive. We found something positive. We honored them in some way. Um, even if they're dishonorable. People say, what is wrong with you? Taxes have gone up. Benefits have gone down. Morality's going away. This guy doesn't even... I mean, well, whatever people want to say about them, whoever's in power, right? Say, well, I'm a part of a different kingdom anyways. And I, I wish those things were different. I wish things were better here. But I'm just kind of staying here for a little while. You want to hear about my kingdom? Because he's a lot better than the one you've got. You know what I'm saying? If we live our lives differently, people are going to say, what is going on with you? 
Whenever people ask that, we tell them about the goodness of God. We speak His things as His priests. Because our lives aren't rooted in this world. They're rooted in Jesus Christ. And that's how we come out of the world and into Jesus. And I hope as we think about these things, and probably you thought of ten other scriptures that would be good to think about with this, but this is, these are the things that should define uh, our lives uh, so that we can live as God wants us to and we can be what He wants us to be. So, thank you guys for your attention. I guess we'll sing a song. 280.